The following audio is from Overland Park Community Church. More information about OPCC can be found online at overlandpark.cc. Last week, we went through the first seven chapters of the Gospel of Luke, and we landed at a story that we learned to love, the miracle at Nain, and what God did there with the widow and uh, her son, and we find ourselves uh, here as promised. I'm going to story through some sections of Scripture again this morning, and we're going to land in chapter 10. Now, chapters 8 and 9, I almost feel bad about storying through. There's just so much there, but I am trusting in the good work of the Holy Spirit that He knows exactly where we need to land and we'll do exactly that. But in chapter 8, to, to make our way through here in, in some fashion of summary, you have the parable of the sower to start out in chapter 8. This is a familiar passage for anybody that's spent any amount of time in the scriptures or been in church or heard any uh, sermons throughout their life. You know that God the Father uh, is sowing the seed of His Word, right? And the truth uh, upon the hearts of man, and there are different types of soil, right? There are four, four soil types, and frankly, we can all at times relate to each one of the soil types described there in the parable of the sower. But without a doubt, we do ask the Lord that the, uh, we would be the types uh, that the, the seed would fall on good soil, and uh, stands for those with a noble and a good heart. And those who hear the word of God retain it, and by persevering, they produce a crop. Those are the types of people we want to be, although we find ourselves uh, in the condition of our hearts uh, uh, have the, the, the makeup of the other types of soil. But uh, we, we move on, and Jesus uh, then goes uh, across the Sea of Galilee with his disciples, a few of them in a boat. The nighttime is upon them. They've got a divine appointment the next day. Jesus is, starts to fall asleep, as I would as well. The disciples are not sleeping because the wind and the waves start to pick up. They freak out. They wake Jesus up. He says, why are you freaking out? He calms the storm, performs a common, um, not a common miracle, but performs a miracle that's common to us. And he, he asks them, where is your faith? And uh, I find God asking me that a lot in my life. You know, when I feel like the wind and the waves are getting me and God's like, where's your faith? And sometimes I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I've got to go find it. And I uh, hope that you guys can relate to that at times as well. Jesus then shares uh, many other miracles and miraculous stories as he's carrying about his ministry through the region of Galilee. And then uh, he's busy and the disciples come to him and they say, Jesus, Jesus, I mean, you just... You got to take a break, man. Uh, your mother and your brother, like they've been trying to find you and, and they have need of you. And he's like, who's my mother and who are my brothers? And, he, and that's kind of a bizarre statement. But he, what he's saying is he was focused on the work of God that was at hand. He just wasn't concerned with his family in, in the way that the world would have thought was fitting. And so what a great teaching from Jesus there. And 
We keep moving in just chapter 8, and he restores a demon-possessed man as they were going across the Sea of Galilee. He calms the storm on the way, right? That next day, one of my favorite passages of Scripture, Jesus walks up to this crazy man. He's chained up and blah, you know, he's a wild man out there in the caves in the Gennesaret, man, and people didn't want to deal with this guy. He was crazy. He was possessed. And when Jesus comes walking up, his disciples, I'm certain, were kind of hanging back, like, "Mm, we'll see how this plays out. You let Jesus go ahead and go up there. And the guy actually recognizes Jesus. He calls him. He says, son of God, what have you to do with me? Right? And these demons are, are actually recognizing that it is Jesus. And he, uh, they beg him, the demons do. Jesus addre- addresses the legion of demons that's in this guy. And they actually ask Jesus to be cast out of the man and into these pigs. And the pigs go running off the hill, off the face of the cliff and into the sea. And I joke uh, as I was reading this about, you know, I like to fish. And uh, I could imagine there's a couple guys out there on a Saturday morning, you know, ripping a buzz bait down the edge. They probably didn't have buzz baits back then, but I, I like to fish. And one time I had a big buck, man, one time. He came running down the hill, big old buck, man. He came walking down the hill and he just got right in the water and he swam all the way across a huge lake cove on, on Beaver Lake. And I was like, that is awesome. And so I kind of imagine these guys though, like fishing and they're like, what in the... These pigs just coming over the cliff, you know, and they go down into the the swine, go down into the lake, and there's a whole sermon I could preach on that, and we're not doing it, but Jesus tells the demon-possessed man, go back to where you're from and tell him the good news. Tell him what God has done for you, and indeed, that guy probably had uh, one heck of a testimony when he got home. Pretty exciting story there. He raises uh, Jairus, a famous guy in the area, he raises Jairus's daughter from the dead, and, and then he, uh, let's see, what else did he do? Oh, he heals the woman with the, ble- the blood issue. She had had an issue, uh, would assume that it was a t- type of menstrual issue that she struggled with her entire life, and it's a powerful story when she says she spent everything that she had trying to get better, but when she heard about Jesus, she blew through a crowd of people just to touch the hem of his robe. And she was healed. And Jesus knew that power had come out of him when she touched her robe because he asked them, you know, he asked the disciples, like, who touched me? And they're, of course, they're like, what do you mean, Jesus? What do you mean who touched you? Like, there's like thousands of people following us, like, who didn't touch you, right? He's like, no, no, no. Somebody needed me, right? And he healed that, that lady. An amazing story. And crazy, all that's in chapter eight. So, Chapter 9, Jesus sends out the 12 disciples and he commissions them. He's like, no, go, with an exclamation point. And he says, don't take a staff, don't take a bag, no bread, no money, not even an extra shirt. And I'm like, that, you know, I like to, I can rough it a little bit, but my, I'm not, I, when I pack my bags, dude, I for sure have lots of underwear, man. I mean, I can go without shower but not, no spare underwear, man, that's not happening. So I would have struggled a bit here with Jesus sending them out. But jokingly, I say that uh, it's a big deal. In chapter 9, Jesus sends them out. He's like, look, boys, you're on your own now. And it's a big deal. He sends them out with power and authority. And he tells them, look, not everybody's going to receive you. 
In fact, most of them are not going to receive you, but just shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. That's what he tells them. And they come back and they report, man, that was tough, but that was awesome. That's basically the gist of their report. And that's kind of a life lived for Jesus. <laughs> it was tough, but that was awesome. That's been my experience following Jesus. And uh, I wouldn't change anything about it. He feeds the 5,000. We all know that story. Uh, five loaves of bread, two fish. He performs a miracle and provides sustenance for a massive crowd of people. But what's cool is Jesus didn't feed them. The disciples did. Jesus just provided the food, right? And he invited the disciples into his work of blessing the people that were there that had need. He does the same thing for us. What a good God he is. He predicts his death uh, after Peter. He asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Who do men say that I am? And they say, oh, well, some say you're John the Baptist or a prophet or a teacher or a good dude. He says, well, who do you say that I am, Peter? Peter says, you're the son of God, man. You're the Christ, the Messiah. And he's like, well done, right? And then, so Jesus is like, yeah, awesome. Or Peter's like, awesome, awesome. You know, man, I'm following the right guy. And then P Jesus proceeds very next paragraph to say, yeah, 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 that's cool, but I'm going to die. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die. They're going to kill me. In three days, I'll be in the grave, and then I'll raise from the dead. And he's like, you know, they're, they're confused. Um, and then Jesus encourages Peter, because he knows that probably didn't sound all that awesome. Peter, he probably knew that was a little bit unmotivating for Peter to hear at that time, as well as the other disciples. So he takes Peter, James, and John up the Mount of Transfiguration, a story that some of us might be familiar with. The Mount of Transfiguration, uh, an amazing a situation where the boys go on a little hike with Jesus. He's like, come on, boys, let's take a little walk. They go up the mountain, and they probably being tired, uh, going up wherever, whatever mountain they went up, taking a little siesta, and all of a sudden they wake up to Jesus completely transfigured in his state of holiness as he would be unbridled in the form of flesh, and accompanied by Moses and Elijah. So literally, you have Peter, James, and John, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Jesus, Moses, and Elijah are in a glorified state. Peter, James, and John just woke up from a nap. And Peter's like, what is happening? It is good for us to be here. Let's build some tents, get a fire going. We're hanging out. Boys night. And Jesus is like, chill out, Peter. But the uh, father, literally the audible voice of God comes down and confirms for Peter, James, and John, this is my son. Follow him. Listen to him. And it was this miraculous experience for those men that Jesus was confirming himself, even though what he was telling them was difficult, he was confirming for them who he was so that they had the courage to continue to follow. God does that for us, doesn't he? I mean, I haven't been up on the mountain and seen the transfigured face of Jesus, but I've absolutely seen the work of God in my life over and over and over, and that continues to give me the courage needed to continue following Jesus in the way that he wants. And he heals another demon-possessed boy. He predicts his death a second time to the disciples, just making absolute certain that he, they knew what they were getting into. He explains to them the cost of following him. He goes on and, and, and says, you know, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. The other guy said, let me go bury my dad or do this or that. And he says, Anyone who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for service in the kingdom of God. A really important teaching about 
evaluating the cost of following Jesus, right? If you want to uh, follow him, you must learn to lose your life. And so he's teaching the disciples in, in an incredible way. I don't actually know how much time necessarily was elapsed between chapters 8 and 9, but wow, Jesus was doing a mighty work among the nation of Israel, and people were taking notice. And it was just him and 12 guys. In chapter 10, we get to Jesus sending out 70, and some versions say 72. I don't think it really matters. There's some commentary on, on the importance of the number 70 in the Bible, but we're not going to get into all that today. We're going to say 70 people were sent out. Jesus, more importantly, the lesson there is that he's teaching them about that the harvest is plentiful, plentiful right? And he tells him, he says, look up, man, the fields are white with harvest. There's so much harvest out here, but the laborers are few. And he's He's building up the disciples' courage to continue to live a life that he's asked them to do. In verse 3, he just simply says, Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Well, that's what he's doing for us. But that doesn't sound super encouraging. Lambs among wolves. Don't wolves eat lambs? Right? You're like, hmm. So Jesus is teaching them, though, what it's like to follow him. So we get... Uh, to verse 13, and or I'm sorry, let's, well, let's say verse 11. And it says, even, you know, um, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet is a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. And so he's telling these disciples to tell the people that they minister to that the kingdom of God is here and tell them about Jesus. Tell them the good news. Give them the story. Proclaim the truth. That's what he's asking of them. And this is kind of cool. In verse 13, he says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they'd repented a long time ago. And what's fascinating is I like, you know, just much like last week, I was like, Nain, I've never even heard of the town of Nain. So let's look into this, right? Pretty cool miracle, whole sermon about it last week. Here I'm like, Chorazin, never even heard of that. That sounds like chorizo. I love chorizo. I'm hungry. (laughs) No. Uh, Woe to you, Chorazin. What's crazy is nothing is recorded in scripture about Chorazin. Nothing. Not one thing. We know nothing about them. Uh, But Jesus definitely holds them accountable here. Right? He says, you've seen my work. You know my name. You've seen what's been done. And I'm holding you accountable to that. And Jesus is doing the same for every person, man, woman, and child on the planet Earth today. He's holding all of us accountable to our knowledge of the story, person, and work of Jesus Christ. But I thought that was interesting. We only know in the scriptures what's been recorded for us, right? What God saw fit for us to learn and glean from. But there's so much more. There's, there's, there's 10,000 other Chorazines out there that we don't actually know, but God will spend an eternity revealing all of it to us when we are with him. That's exciting news. We, we get to the parable then of the Good Samaritan, and that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning. And so Jesus' ministry is on fire, and a attorney comes to him, a, a lawyer, a teacher of the law, and, and sorry, and not a teacher, an expert of the law. This would be like a lawyer, an attorney. And on verse 25, join with me if you would. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? It's a fair question and a fair response, right? One thing that I actually didn't mention 
first service, so praise God for second chances. This is really cool. Eternal life is not, it has nothing to do with some sort of time-bound destiny. We think of eternal life as like this thing that happens, like you get saved and Jesus changes your life and he grants you the ticket into heaven and eternal life is like you're granted that after you die. It's like this time-bound destiny thing. Like, no, no, no. The eternal life in the Greek here that's described is, is, is a life fully lived. And so our eternal life starts now. Like we're living our eternal life now. But, you know, I mean, we're all eternal beings, right? I mean, our souls go somewhere. It's heaven or hell, right? And so eternity, though, like when this guy says, what do I do to inherit eternal life? He's not necessarily saying, how do I get saved and make sure I don't go to hell when I die? He's saying, how do I inherit eternal life? How do I fill my life with joy and purpose right in the here and now? That's more so the question that people are asking on the planet today, and we all have asked it ourselves. That's what's led us to Jesus. Jesus replies, what's written in the law? How do you read it, right? He's saying, you're the attorney. (laughs) You tell me, man. You know, you're the interpreter of the law. He says, so the guy answers in verse 27, love the Lord your God. He's kind of summarizing. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, you've answered correctly. Do this and live. (laughs) He's like, pretty simple, right? But Jesus knew the condition of this guy's heart, as he does you and I as well. He knows our hearts. He knows our every thought. The Bible says he knows every number of hair on our top of our heads, even though I'm losing a few more these days. He said, and Jesus says, um, uh, oh, I'm sorry, verse 29, but he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, this is important, and who's my neighbor? So he's kind of trying to justify his actions here. He's almost saying, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and all your mind. He's kind of like, okay, I've done that. But like, Jesus, let's clarify this neighbor piece. Who is my neighbor? It's almost like he's got a self-righteous position. And it's kind of like the rich young ruler, right? Jesus talked to, he said, Hey man, you know, uh, if, you, if you've done all these things, like fulfill the law, you know, then just go sell everything you got and, and you'll be fine. And the guy did what? He went away weeping. He was super sad. So Jesus was proving to him, dude, you, you haven't done everything to my standards. None of us have. But he's teaching this attorney here a good quality lesson. And instead of just beating the guy up with a really straightforward answer, he says, I'm going to teach this guy a story in classic Jesus fashion. I'm going to tell this guy a story. In verse 30, he says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And now this guy would have known Jerusalem to Jericho was kind of a rough path. There was a lot of commerce happening there. There was a lot of uh, travel and trade. It was between two metropolises, lots of people passing through. Great opportunity for thugs and thieves and and people uh, up to no good to take advantage of people while they were on this journey. And so, you know, I was... I, I said earlier this morning in the first service, even like in real estate, uh, when I do a transaction, you know, every one of my clients has to sign like a wire fraud alert. And it's like kind of annoying because it's like, why do we have to sign this thing? But it's because there's thieves. The money's traveling and people are there to intercept it, right? And that's the reality of our world that we're living in. It was very much a similar reality to the world that they were living in. 
And this man's traveling from Jericho, I'm sorry, from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked by robbers. Jesus is telling this story. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and they went away and they left him half dead. This guy was in bad shape. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. He's like, huh, poor guy. And he just keeps going. The uh, sex. So to a Levite, uh, also a priestly line, right, of the tribe of Levi, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. He's like, huh, poor guy. These are church guys just passing them by. He says, but a Samaritan, third guy, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, poured oil and wine on him. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to the inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. He told the innkeeper, look after him. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? That's the question Jesus asked the attorney. He said, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. And so a terrific teaching, a classic model of Jesus's teaching for us. And I have several things I want to share with you guys, so bear, bear with me here. The Samaritan in this story is certainly modeling Jesus himself. He loved sacrificially as Jesus has and does and did. He was an outsider to society and despised by many. You guys know, if you've heard, been in church any time, you've heard Samaritans. They were even worse than the Gentiles. And so like the Jewish people, there were Jews, Gentiles, and then Samaritans. Samaritans were like the, the lowest of the low. They were the most outcast people in the society. And in fact, it was really common, like if a, if a, if a Samaritan woman uh, like she, you know, w was uh, struggling in birth uh, at the time uh, of need when her child was coming. Man, the, like it was common. People were like, "Man, don't help that lady." Literally, like you're just gonna put, a, you're just literally gonna help another Samaritan come into the world, and that's the last thing we need. And that is the kind of mindset that the people of that day had towards these people. And Jesus, frankly, was the same way, right? They called him. Every name in the book. The drunkards sung songs about him. We read last week that they pushed him, tried to push him off the cliffs at Nazareth. Uh, he was mocked and ridiculed. He was called a, a bastard, an illegitimate son of his father, right? He was actually Joseph's son, but not really Joseph's son. And so they made accusations about Mary and, you know, all sorts of things, right? And uh, Jesus was uh, much like this Samaritan. He came after others failed to meet the need. Jesus has done that. After everything fails to meet the needs that we have, here comes Jesus, right, in our lives to help with exactly what we need. He came before it was too late. Jesus is really timely when it comes to our needs and our circumstances. Man, when things are tough, like this man in the ditch that's having a hard time, that was robbed, beaten, and flogged, left with nothing, and here comes the Samaritan 
to care for his every need. And he gave tender care. He came with everything necessary and even provided for future needs. And that's exactly how Jesus is for us. So first, I want to point out that the Samaritan models the nature of Jesus very well for us. I feel like this attorney would have thought in his mind, man, if what Jesus is saying is true, this, this is what it would be. I'm to love my neighbor. My neighbor is defined as the one who others may even consider to be my enemy. And my neighbor is largely the one who has the need that's right in front of me. It's not the guy that lives next door or the person that works in the cubicle next to me. It's the person that God's put in my life that has the obvious and plain need right before me. That's our neighbor. And so what a, what a great description that is. An old preacher said this. I don't have his name, but I just it's not my quote. But I enjoyed it. He says, The world would be a changed place if every Christian attended to the simple sorrows that are plain before them. Man, what a good word. I'll read it again. The world would be a changed place if every Christian attended to the simple sorrows that are plain before them. Man, good word. A strong word for me. And most don't have this kind of love for God and others that Jesus was describing. I don't have it. I'm a born-again, saved Christian lover and follower of Jesus and a disciple maker and family man, and I don't have the love of God and, and the love of others like Jesus describes in the Scriptures. I mean, his standard is higher than what I'm capable of fulfilling on my own. The same is true for you. But that's why Jesus came. <laughs> like he, he came to fulfill the life that we couldn't live on our own. If I could be holy like God expects, then it was not necessary for Jesus to come. I hope you guys understand that. And he was wanting the attorney to understand this as well. The attorney had the feeling that he was doing really well in his life. I mean, he was an interpreter of the law. He knew what was going on. He was probably very active in the synagogue. He probably knew a lot of people within the Sanhedrin. He was probably uh, very uh, well connected with prominent people in the community, in the industry, right? Like that's a really kind of common a person even in this community that we're loving and serving and living in here. You know, a lot of uh, folks here connected with, with the right people and, and, and well positioned uh, politically or financially or whatever. That's where this guy was at. But Jesus taught him an important lesson. Charles Spurgeon said this, what the law demands in us, the gospel produces in us. What the law demands of us, the gospel produces in us. See, the law requires us to be perfect, to love God perfectly, to love others perfectly, and to go and make disciples unbridled without hiccup. But that's not possible, right? And the gospel, it is Christ in us. It is our surrender to him and the filling of his spirit in our lives that enables us to do what God has asked I felt like God wanted me to bring this message home last week's, this week's, the coming weeks with some personal reflection. I hope you guys appreciate a spirit of transparency from me. And when I say I don't love God perfectly, like I'm, a, I'm on staff at this church and I love God. 
Like when Corey's singing that song, glory and praise, power and strength, worthy is the Lamb of God, hallelujah. Dude, I want to sing like the loudest one in the room because I love Jesus, man. I'm so amazed by him. And by three o'clock this afternoon, I'll be frustrated by something in my life and not giving glory, honor, and praise. And you're lying to yourself if you're not the same way. It's just how we are. Like, and we have to recognize, man, that's not meeting the standard of God, but he doesn't expect us to meet that standard. He expects us to rest in Jesus and let him meet that standard for us. But these are just my personal reflections and why I felt God led me to fall on this particular passage for us this morning. These are just for me. These may not be for you, but I hope they're for somebody. But this is for me. This is how God speaks to me in his word. I wrote, at times I have a hard time loving God and others in the way that I want to. I just do. I want to love God with all my heart, all my soul, and all my strength and every ounce of my being all the time. I want that. I just find myself at times not like that. And I desire that, but I'm asking for God's help when I can't. Second thing, Samaritan-like opportunities present themselves for sure weekly, sometimes daily. I'm winning some and losing some. That's the reality. Samaritan-like opportunities, man, there are, there are simple needs that people have. They might be financial, physical, spiritual, emotional. There's simple needs that surface in my life every week and most times every day. And I'm winning some, meaning I'm, I'm, I'm able to minister and meet the needs as Christ would for some of those people. And there's other times where I see the need and I'm like, that sucks, dude. I mean, it's true. And I put the opportunities that I miss are because I'm too busy. It's not because I don't have the heart to love and care for that person because I do, but I feel the stress and the tension of living life on this side of eternity and caring for myself or my wallet or my stomach or whatever. I'm like, dude, I, man, I should help that guy, but I'm so hungry, you know, or what? It just said me a number of things. That's a, that's a silly example, but it's true. I mean, those are the types of things that keep us, you know, or like, man, I should help that guy, but oh man, I really need to like read kids to my, you know, read, read a book to my kids. Dude, reading a book to your kids is great, but like, not if you're replacing that with something God's actually asked you to do. That's why Jesus taught about like, who, are my mo- who is my mother and who are my brothers? Like right now, I don't care that they need me. I'm doing what God's asked me to do. Now there's a time where God needs you to be with them. But in this culture that we live in, this American model of life that we live, man, we, st- we struggle with this. Like we have like standards of living and like things that you should do you know, and if you're not doing them, then you're kind of like failing as a dad or a parent or a husband or, or whatever it is. And man, that's the tension that you got to live in as a Christian, you know, man. Yeah. Like I'm a dad, I'm a father. I have four kids and I love my kids more than anything, man. I love my kids. There are times that in my flesh, I just fail. Like I decided to do something else instead of be their father and I dropped the ball and I screwed up. There's also times where I'm not present as their father because I know for a fact God's called me to do something else. And that is a part of the sacrifice, right? 
You just got to walk in that balance. I, I, don't have, I don't do it perfectly, but it is the balance that we ask the Lord for. Jesus is actively trying to help me organize my life around these Samaritan-like opportunities, not just fit them in. That was a personal conviction that I have. I am so busy in my life and that I have, a, I have a heart for these opportunities and to do God's will and to meet people where they're at and all that, but only if it's like kind of conveniently fits in, you know, to my schedule. But man, God's really kind of pushing back on me and being like, no, man, th- you actually are going to build your life around these things and not be so busy. And if you don't do that, I'm going to rob you of some of the joy in your life. That's how you know it's not of him, right? It's like, I might be living the life that I want to live, but the joy's not there. I might be making the money I want to make and the kids I want to have and the house I want to live in and shoot the biggest deer in the, in the state of Kansas and do all these things. Blah, blah, blah. But I'm like, I'm not, I'm not happy. I don't have the joy. And Jesus is like, dude, it's because you're like missing these opportunities because your life's not built around them. You don't have a lot of availability. You look at this Samaritan. Dude, he, he literally was walking down the road. He had something going on. He sees the guy and he's like, oh, shoot. He goes and helps the guy. He, he cleans him up, man. He bandages the guy up, right? He, he, uh, he pours oil and wine on him. He, he lets the guy, he puts the guy on his donkey and lets the guy ride the donkey. And I'm sure he was walking next to him. I promise you they weren't broing up on the donkey. And, you know, and then he took him to the inn, right? And then he paid for the, 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 what that guy needed that day and the next day, like in the beyond, right? And so he, I mean, he just literally paused his life and like blessed this guy in a huge way. And so for me, um, the joy of my life is recognizing these opportunities and stepping into them with focus and availability. Those are two things I struggle with, focus and availability. It happens to me so many times, like, I could literally be on the phone with somebody that's talking to me about a, a need, a, a marriage issue, a friendship issue, a health problem, anything like that. And my heart is for them. But man, my phone is just blowing up with like work calls. And I'm like feeling that tension, like that person's on speakerphone and I'm listening. But like, I'm also trying to like manage the drama with some other things in my life. And, and you can't do both. You know what that is? Is a lack of focus. And you know what happens is you suck at work and you suck at ministering to this person. You don't do either one of them very well. You do both of them poorly. You need to pick one. You're either going to do this thing really well and not this one, or you're going to do this thing well and not this one. And sometimes they have to stack on top of each other, right? You do them all throughout the course of your day or your week or your life, but you, it's very difficult to like do them all in tandem. It's really tough. I can't do it. Um, maybe you can, but, um, you know, focus and availability is something that God's laid on my heart and that, that produces joy. When I create margin and availability to tend to the needs of the people that God wants me to minister to, and I can focus, the joy comes back. I'm like, oh my God, I'm, I'm so grateful that you use me in that way, right? Like, God, thank you for my story and letting it bless this guy's story. And thank you for my family uh, or my, re- my finances or whatever it is that, I'm, that God's using to be a blessing to his kingdom. And when I realize that I'm being used for God in a really special way, my joy is, fulfilled, is full. My cup is full. 
And so uh, I want you to think about, and I'm, I'll, I'll, let, I'll invite Corey up. We're going to land the plane here shortly, and <clears throat> no rush. But I want you to think about which character are you today? Much like last week, we had the miracle at Nain. Jesus raised the widow's son and gave him back to her. You know, we all in the room could identify with each of the characters in that story. You know, some, some of us may have been the people in the city, may have been the widow, may have been the son. A number of, of opportunities to talk through that. This morning, though, some of us, somebody is fitting into the role of each person in this story. I can relate with all four of them. You might be the lawyer who's kind of playing games with Jesus a little bit, mixing words. Like Jesus said, love your neighbor. And he's like, what is a neighbor? You know, it's like, you're mixing words with Jesus? Like, he's like the author of life, man. You know, I mean, it's okay to ask Jesus questions, but pretty confident that the heart of this lawyer was, he was playing games with Jesus. Like he was pretty convinced, like his life was in order. And like, depending on Jesus's answer, what he said, what a neighbor was, was whether or not like he was, he was in good standing or not. And he's fooling himself. And so you might be like the, the attorney in here today, just fooling yourself. You're mixing words with Jesus, like what is love or what is truth or what is my life or what is the gospel or what, what, what is the commission? What does it mean you know, to judge or to not judge? You're mixing, you're playing with fire. You're mixing words. You might be the priest or the Levi, just super good at doing church. Man, awesome at doing church. I mean, like these, the priests and the Levi, dude, they're busy, man. Preaching sermons, baptizing people, doing the communion, singing the songs, opening the doors, running the preschool, making disciples in D group, bro bashing, hosting, loving, serving, eating, churching but walking right by people all the time that have a clear and obvious need, right? There's so many, man. They're plain and simple, and they're right there. I'm guilty. I, I, I walk by needs all the time. I already confessed that to you guys, and I'm asking the Lord to help me with that. And I, and I pray that this church would not be the type of church that we're so awesome at church, but we suck at reaching people, man. I don't want that. Jesus doesn't want that. He didn't want that for the lawyer. That's why he gave this story, so he could teach him a lesson, so that we could learn from it today. You might be the man on the side of the road who I think is in the best place in the story. He's my favorite character in this story other than Jesus. Man, he got robbed, beaten, flogged. He's down. But he is in a desperate place. He needs Jesus and he knows it. He's actually the most spiritually healthy person in this story. I'm in desperate need of Jesus today. Desperately need him. I have so many good things going on in my life, man. God is so good to me. But he keeps things broken. He keeps just enough windows shattered in the house of my life that I realize how badly I need him. You might be the Samaritan, and God might be using you. What a privilege that is. At times in my life, I've had the opportunity to be the Samaritan. 
What a joy, man. There's not anything that will fill your cup like knowing God used you to bless somebody else in the name of Jesus. I've been all four in the story. And I don't know where you are today, but I pray that you would seek God and His heart for your life. And I pray that this story and this teaching would have ministered to you and that you would draw closer and closer to Jesus as you reflect on what he's saying to you. Corey's going to lead us in uh, worship here as we land the service. I will ask you guys, join me in a word of prayer as we let the Holy Spirit do what only he can do. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your teaching. Thank you for the gospel of Luke. Thank you for the for your teaching, Lord. The story of the Samaritan and the man on the road who was in dire need. Thank you for the question that the lawyer had asked as it teaches us so many things that you want us to know. Lord, I pray for every need in this room. I pray for every person in every circumstance. Many of us going through life's ups and downs in, in, in many different ways. But God, you are the same. You, you can meet us exactly where we are. You can answer our questions like the lawyer had. Or you can heal our wounds like the man in the ditch. Lord, or you can inspire us to be the Samaritan. Lord, or you can, you can heal our broken religious um, preconceived context, Lord. You, you can break those down like you did for the priest. Lord, we trust you. We love you. We ask that you have your way with our lives in this church. And may you get the glory in the name of Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Overland Park Community Church in Overland Park, Kansas. For more information, visit us online at overlandpark.cc.